Let's begin this morning with a word of prayer. God, I pray that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what you have for us this morning. In your name, amen. It is a great joy to be the mom of three children. Okay, well, sometimes it's not always quite so joyous, but most of the time it's a true joy um, to be the mom of three children. And as any honest parent will let you know, you can learn a lot from your kids. Well, my youngest, Maddie, is six, and she is what you would call a free spirit. She really doesn't care what anyone thinks. Like, she wore her shoes on the wrong feet up until this past year, and when people would say, Maddie, your shoes are on the wrong feet, she would look at them and say, I don't care. Well, the other night, we were driving to church, and we get out, and it's a Wednesday night, and I happen to look at Maddie, and she has got her leggings pulled up above her knees. She's wearing red ballet slippers with huge flowers on them, and she has a baseball cap turned backwards. And you're probably wondering why I didn't notice this before we got in the car to go to church, but with three kids, I'm just doing the head count, making sure I'm not leaving anyone behind. So I say to her, Maddie, why did you wear your around-the-house slippers to church? And she just looks at me and she says, oh, because they feel good and I can dance like this. And she proceeds to dance into church. It's moments like those where I realize that I have something to learn from my daughter. She is so free to be who God calls her to be at any given moment. And if I'm honest, there are lots of times that what she does might seem foolish or ridiculous to me. And I don't want people to ever think that a decision I make or something I do is foolish. And so if you listen to our text this morning, you know that as we worship today, this Tuesday of Holy Week, and we finish making our journey towards the cross, our text reminds us that the world considers what we cherish most, our relationship with Jesus Christ, foolishness. It's interesting to note that the Tuesday of Holy Week was the day that Jesus returns to the temple to preach and to teach. Now, he's already cleansed the temple and really ticked off um, all the priests. But at this point, he comes back and he's preaching and he's teaching. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees are trying to trip him up. They're, try they're hoping that he's going to fall into this quagmire of all these religious rules and laws. And as we all know, Jesus can't be so easily trapped. And Matthew 22:46 concludes that no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, they dared to ask him no more questions. I think we often have moments where we're just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. We have lots of questions about our faith, about the nature of God, about what it means to live as followers of Jesus Christ. And our text for today questions God's plan of salvation hinging on Christ crucified on the cross. I mean, is this foolishness? I want to share with you all Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the message for verses 18 through 25. Listen to this. The message that points to Christ on the cross seems like sheer silliness to those of us hell-bent on destruction. But for those of us on the way of salvation, it makes perfect sense. This is the way God works. And most powerfully, as it turns out, it's written, I'll turn conventional wisdom on its head and I'll expose so-called experts as crackpots. So where can you find someone truly wise, truly educated, 
truly intelligent in this day and age, hasn't God exposed it all as pretentious nonsense? Since the world and all its fancy wisdom never had a clue when it came to God, God in his wisdom took delight in using what the world considered dumb, preaching of all things, to bring those who trust him into the way of salvation. While the Jews clamor for miraculous demonstrations and the Greeks go on for philosophical wisdom, we go right on proclaiming Christ the crucified. Jews treat this like the anti-miracle and Greeks pass it off as absurd. But to us who are personally called by God himself, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's ultimate miracle and wisdom all wrapped up in one. Human wisdom is so tinny, so impotent, next to the seeming absurdity of God. Human strength can't begin to compete with God's weakness. So Paul makes it clear right here in the beginning by quoting Isaiah 29, 14, that it was always God's intention to call us, to to call God's children to account when our religion is superficial or hypocritical. He also reminds us that the people of the fallen world are always going to rebel against God and to reject God. And so God's plan to save those rebellious people to save us seems crazy, scandalous, and foolish. As we're only days away from this crazy salvation, I want you to ask yourself, are you more like the Jews or the Greeks in Paul's day? I mean, the Jews were so appalled by the very notion that God's plan could mean putting their Messiah on the cross that they can't accept it. Instead, they use the cross as the very proof that Jesus could not be the Messiah. I mean, it just proved he'd obviously been cursed by God, as stated in Deuteronomy 21, 23. You must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. So the cross is a stumbling block for the Jews. I wonder today, what is your stumbling block to living fully as one called by God? Or maybe you're more like the Greeks. And when I think back to my days in seminary, I can see how this is all too possible. I mean, the Greeks sought wisdom. It was power for them. A man who could argue all sides of an issue and had a clever tongue. I mean, he was revered by everyone. They believed that a God truly interested in human affairs couldn't be a God at all. And a God who suffered for those very humans was a contradiction. For the Greeks, the very idea of incarnation, it was revolting to them. Now, I'm not trying to say that your desire for an education makes you like the Greeks, but I do think it can be so tempting to gain knowledge for knowledge's sake instead of for the sake of God. And I think it is a powerful feeling to have all the answers, even if we're not asking the right questions. So Paul says to us in verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Paul's talking about all people here who follow Jesus Christ. But this morning, as I have a chance to talk with those of you who feel called maybe to vocational ministry or mission, I want you to think about what you were like when you were called. Maybe you were timid and shy and you couldn't see how God was gonna use you. Or maybe you were arrogant and you said, oh yeah, I'm gonna change the world for God. Or maybe you were really angry because God changed your plans for your life 
Or maybe you were confused and you thought, what in the world is God going to do with me? It's interesting because the standards of popularity were the same in Paul's day as they are for us today. People with power, money, and wisdom. Those were the ones that God should call. Yet God chose you. God chose me. Our text says that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So I want us to ask ourselves this morning, does this mean we have to be foolish to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? One of my very favorite authors of all times, and I was introduced to him when I was at seminary, is Henry Nouwen. And if you have not read anything from Henry Nouwen, I strongly encourage you to go out today and buy any one of his books. Henry Nouwen was a priest and a professor. He taught at places like Notre Dame and Harvard and Yale. But he chose to spend the last years of his life living in a community with people who were emotionally, physically, and mentally challenged. And he will tell you that those were the best 10 years of his life. Well, it was in this community where one of his fellow friends, Trevor, the community decided that this mentally and emotionally challenged man needed to go to a psychiatric facility for evaluation. So when Trevor goes to the hospital, Henry decides, I want to go visit Trevor. So he calls the hospital and he says, can I come for a visit? Well, of course, the people in charge are like, this is Henry Nowen. So they say, sure, come visit. But would you mind if we have a luncheon in your honor? We're going to invite some doctors and some clergy, and we're going to have it in the golden room. It's a really special room in their facility. Well, Henry says, okay, sure, and he agrees. Well, Henry shows up that day in the golden room, and he looks around, and he doesn't see Trevor anywhere. So he asks the person in charge, well, where is Trevor? And the person says, oh, oh, well, you know, our patients and our staff, they don't ever eat together, and no patient has ever been in the golden room. And Henry says that he just felt this nudging of the Holy Spirit that said, include Trevor. He knew that community was all about inclusion, and he's not a confrontational man, Henry Nowen wasn't, and so it really took some guts, but he said he just really felt like he had to say, well, the whole reason I came here was to have lunch with Trevor, and if Trevor can't attend the luncheon, then I'm not going to attend the luncheon. We can imagine what happened then, of course. They found a way for Trevor to be the first patient in the history of their facility to enter into the golden room. And so Henry goes on to say that he's talking to the person on his right and Trevor's sitting there, and all of a sudden Trevor stands up. And Henry's thinking, oh no, it was a very, very awkward moment. And Trevor raises his glass, and you can just feel it. I mean, the tension is so thick, and he starts to sing. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. Well, here's this entire room full of PhD and clergy. And here's this man with a level of brokenness and challenge that they cannot even begin to understand. But they don't know what to do. So Henry goes on to say, softly at first, they began to sing along with Trevor. And so at the end, here are all these doctors and clergy and Henry Nowen who are practically shouting, if you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. And Henry goes on to say that he got up and he said what he was going to say at the luncheon. But the moment that everyone remembered, the moment where God spoke most clearly was in that moment where this man, who all of them would have said was the least likely person to speak for God, spoke. 
I love this story because it is a picture of how foolish and absurd God's love for us can be. So often we're so full of ourselves that we forget that God chooses the least likely. God chooses the foolish to get through to some of us who have forgotten what that's like. Trevor knew the pure, simple joy and love of Jesus Christ. So I want to ask us again this morning, do we have to be foolish to proclaim this amazing news of Jesus Christ? Now, I don't think most of us, especially those of us serving in churches right now, I don't think any of us would say, oh yeah, I want the people I serve to say, that Amy, she is foolish, you know. But I think we have to ask ourselves when we look at our text this morning, Paul is trying to help us understand something that will move us, that will change us, that will transform us into being the very people who are willing to be called fools in the name of Christ. I mean, I know you guys are at Truett to learn more, to gain skills, to grow deeper in your relationships with Jesus Christ. But I want you to know that the message says that God calls the nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. Well, I don't like thinking of myself as a nobody. I don't think very many of us would admit to liking to think of ourselves as a nobody. I mean, all of you want to leave here with some letters behind your name. But I think we have to recognize our need for humility, deep humility, as we embrace the foolishness of the cross. In his book, In the Name of Jesus, Henry Nouwen challenges us. He is convinced that the Christian leader is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. That's one of those, whoo, got to listen to that again, statements. Henry Nouwen challenges us that the Christian leader has to be willing to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. I mean, I can agree with this statement made by Nowen, but I am honest, it terrifies me. I mean, what if the people you serve call you irrelevant? I mean, it makes me wonder if no one ever questions me at church where I serve, maybe I'm not being foolish enough. I mean, I think being a fool means that sometimes we do things as compelled by the Holy Spirit to push the envelope, to push ourselves and the people we serve to be more like Christ in the way we live and in the way that we serve others. And it means that we're not only being made uncomfortable by the Holy Spirit, but we are called to make others uncomfortable in the name of Jesus Christ. Now and goes on to say that we have to offer nothing but our own vulnerable selves because this is the way that Jesus came to reveal God's love. And that's what our text reminds us of this morning. It didn't matter what the Jews said. It didn't matter what the Greeks said. God knew that the only way to save us, rebellious people who are always going to reject God, was to become flesh, dwell among us, Show us what it means to live and to serve with a ridiculous, unfathomable kind of love and then be willing to die. And I get the Jews' point of view. It makes absolutely no sense. I mean, if I were God, no way would I have chosen to come as a baby born to a teenager and then die this horrific death on a cross. But as every one of us sitting here today will say, that is the very reason we chose 
to follow Jesus. We know there's power. We know there's glory. We know there's majesty. But every one of us has been tugged to follow Jesus because we know a God who loved us so much, God was willing to do that for me and for you. I think the great message we have to carry on as ministers of God's word and followers of Jesus is that God loves us not because of what we do or accomplish. And God created us and redeemed us to carry this message of love to other people. That's the message of the cross this week as we journey towards it. God loves us so much that not because of any letters that are strung behind our names, not because of the numbers of our churches, not because of the amazing programs that we help start that feed the homeless, and not because we're making straight A's. God loves us simply because God is God and God is a God of love. And it's in the face of this kind of love that we can find the courage to be foolish in sharing God's love with other people. It's in the face of this kind of love that we can accept being irrelevant to the world. And it's in the face of this kind of love that we can open ourselves to this amazing love and we will be compelled to share it with others no matter what the cost. If we're honest with ourselves this morning, that should terrify us. It means that often God calls us to places and to serve people and to do things that make absolutely no sense. I was never going to be a children's minister. I didn't even like kids. I mean, really, I didn't. I mean, when I was at seminary, if people, I mean, the guys would say, what are you gonna do? I have no idea, but I am not working with kids. And here I am being ministered to children and finding it some of the deepest and richest ministry that I've ever experienced. I mean, I have the chance to sit with a child who looks at me and I say, Abigail, why do you, why do you wanna be baptized? Because Miss Amy, I wanna follow Jesus with my whole life. I mean, that is amazing that God has called me to do something like that. But if I'm honest with you, I would tell you before, I thought it was foolishness. Not that I didn't think people should be children's ministers, just not me. Um, I thought children's ministers were great. And so I think this morning, God's choice to redeem the world by the way of the cross makes it clear to us that no one may boast before God. I wanna challenge you this morning that none of us means to boast. I mean, we know that it's all the good and the right things that are taking place in the world are because of God. But I think in ministry, it is so easy for the praise, for the recognition, for the signs of achievement to become increasingly more and more important to us. And we might not even notice this desire at first. Paul knows this, and that's why Paul reminds us, it is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom for God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, redemption. Or in the words of the message, it says, everything we have, right thinking, right living, a clean slate, a fresh start, it comes from God by the way of Jesus Christ. And that's why we have the saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. I think in ministry, we need the constant Reminder, as followers of Jesus Christ, that it is not all about us, but it is about the God who loves us and who calls us to serve. Paul ends our passage this morning by quoting Jeremiah 9, 24. 
But let those who boast, boast about this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these, I delight. We boast in the Lord because we recognize that we can do nothing apart from God and that God can and will do everything if we are willing. Once again, we're urged to understand that humility, humility is the way to God. And that we, when we boast in ourselves, that's the antithesis of faith because it means we actually think we accomplish something on our very own without God. And it's embarrassing to admit, but that is all too easy to think when you get in ministry and God chooses to bless your ministry. You, you know that at some level, but all of a sudden it's easy to think it's, it's because of me. And God does use us, absolutely God uses us, but it is always about God and God's love for us. This is why the foolishness of the cross is so often difficult for us to grasp, I think, because just as Christ had to be willing to submit himself to death on the cross in order to bring about the fruition of God's plan of salvation, we have to be willing to submit ourselves to Jesus in order for God to use us to do God's work on earth. It is crazy, it is absolutely crazy that God depends on us, mere sinners, to proclaim this message of radical love. But God does. And so as you complete your journey to the cross this morning and continue on this week with Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, I hope that your prayer will be like mine. Lord, please make me a fool for you. Let's pray. Gracious God, it is so easy for us to get caught up and all the details of our lives and the things that people expect from us. And God, even the things you expect from us. But God, this morning here in this place, a place dedicated to training and equipping people to proclaim your good news to a hurting world. I pray, God, that we will be willing to throw caution to the wind and that we will be willing to be called fools and irrelevant if it means showing people your amazing love. For each one of us. God, if nothing else this morning, I pray that each one of us recognized how deeply you love us and that you didn't make a mistake in creating us and that you call us forth from this place to do your work and to share your love in the name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray.